episode 16 of the Data Driven Strength podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest, and I'm going to try not to butcher the pronunciation here. Um, we have Andrelakis Korakakis um, with us today, otherwise known as PAC. So I think we'll probably roll with that for the for the rest of the episode here today. Um, PAC recently has done some some really cool work um, on the concept of minimum effective dose for resistance training, looking at basically uh, you know how how little work can we get away with and still see meaningful increases in one rm strength. But um, I'm definitely not the one to talk about this. Uh, Pack has put a ton of thought and work into this topic. Um, so before we get to you know some of your recent work, Pack, could you just kind of give a, a brief introduction of yourself, uh, kind of how you got into to lifting and the research realm, um, and then we'll kind of kind of dive into to some of your recent work and also. Huge thank you for, for taking the time to, to join us today, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity um, and really glad to be involved with you guys and all the work that you do. Um, just for reference's sake, I have two screens. So I'm looking at the second screen where I have you guys and the camera is there just so it's it doesn't look like I'm completely rude here. Um, my name is Pac. That's an abbreviation for my full name, uh, Patroclos Andrulakis Karakakis. Uh, I'm originally from Greece, but I live in the UK and more specifically in Southampton in England. That's where the Titanic left from. Um, actually, that's the only fun fact I have about Southampton. Um, now, I started lifting at around, uh, around the age of 16. Um, slowly fell in love with the, the iron game, um, then started experimenting with powerlifting around five years in my lifting career started as most of us did, you know, not bodybuilding, but trying to get bigger and leaner, etc. Um, I then pursued a bachelor's of science at Solon University, uh, which was in fitness and personal training, which is essentially sports science with a practical component added to it. So we had things like working with older adults and uh, coaching athletes, uh, et cetera. Um, as I was doing my bachelor's, I met Dr. James Steele, uh, who got me uh, hooked with uh, research and uh, sort of sparked my interest to actually uh, investigate uh, topics that I was curious about. So as a lifter, I had many questions that as I started digging more and more, and I always liked searching for stuff, I saw that there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been not officially answered, but kind of officially investigated. And that's where I thought, hey, you know, I could be answering some of those questions for myself and fellow lifters. And then uh, at some point, I decided um, after doing a bit of research and publishing some stuff on powerlifters um, and other strength sport athletes uh, to pursue a PhD under Dr. James Steele. As you guys mentioned, it um, it was uh, around the minimum effective training dose, i.e. what's the least a powerlifter can do and still lift. And the idea came from uh, a pilot study that we did with um, a powerlifting coach and a powerlifting team over in Greece, uh, where we basically wanted to look at how low can we push training volume and still see meaningful strength increases. Um, and we had access to a powerlifting team and he was the coach. So it was a perfect scenario for, for research, at least for powerlifters, which are a very difficult population to recruit. And then uh, the idea sort of uh, was born from that project. So I thought, hey, uh, like essentially, initially my PhD was uh, on factors that affect powerlifting performance. It was a very general, generic topic. And then um, we thought, 
hey, but we actually look into what's the least one can do and still get meaningfully stronger because there wasn't much on that. I mean, there, there isn't much on powerlifting in general. And at the moment where we stand is I've uh, submitted my PhD. I'm waiting now to defend it. And we've published um, a systematic review going over the current literature and what uh, and trying to answer the question of what's the least somebody can do and still get stronger, as well as a multi-experiment paper uh, that is comprised of five studies uh, that are all part of the PhD, all on powerlifters. Uh, we can dig into the to the details as, as we go on. Uh, but essentially that's out there now as a preprint, hasn't been officially peer reviewed, aside from the eight peers that reviewed it because uh, there were other co-authors on that paper. Um, and yes, looking forward to having it officially published just so it gets a bit more traction. And that's that, that's, that's me. Awesome, man. Um, I think probably a, a, a good place to start before we, we go down different rabbit holes is just to kind of, if you don't mind giving like a brief overview of the sequence of studies um, in that preprint and okay. the general findings. Um, you know, I mean, this, we'll, we'll, we'll link the preprint in the, the description of this episode, uh, no sure, matter where sounds. you're listening to this. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's just an awesome, it's an awesome manuscript with, um, you know, just very, very well outlined. And I think it was really interesting how you guys kind of did this sequence of studies, which again, we'll, we'll probably get into, but uh, Pac, if you don't mind just briefly sure. going over kind of the sequence of studies you guys did and the general outcomes you found, and then we can use that as a, a, a jumping off point to, mm -hmm. to get into some rabbit holes. So for, for some of the, the people that are listening to this that may not be uh, aware of what a multi-experiment paper is, that's that's something that we don't often see in sports science uh, and the, the studies that we look at as lifters, but it's a very common thing in, for example, psychology. So if you go on, a, on some psychology journals, you'll see that there are studies that have um, a research question and then experiment one, experiment two, experiment three, all bundled up in a single paper. So what had what happened was I had to do a few studies for my PhD and wanted to publish those. Originally, the idea was to publish them separately, but because they're all under the same topic, um, the minimum effective dose for one arm strength, I thought that it would really dilute the, the, the message, um, well, the, the totality uh, of evidence if we had five or six differences out there all on the same topic uh, some with small samples and all on power lifters because already people are confusing the systematic review of the project with a multi-experiment paper simply because they're on the same topic and the sim a similar population anyways so uh five studies study one was an interview uh study with power lifters and uh, powerlifting coaches and um we were fortunate enough to get some help with the recruitment process um and we were able to recruit some elite uh, powerlifters uh, to participate and uh, some very uh, experienced coaches uh, where uh, we asked them questions around the minimum effective dose, its utility, uh, its limitations, and um, trying to essentially quantify it. But obviously, uh, we were trying to get um, sort of richer data through those interviews. Um, then the second training study was... Uh, Okay, a bit of a very a bit, bit of background. Though there was, we were we were planning on doing a few training studies 
And in order to uh, appropriately analyze the data, we didn't want to just use inferential statistics because we were aware that the samples that we were going to recruit were not going to be uh, anything uh, that would allow us to be very confident in those statistics. So we essentially uh, are lifting athletes and coaches through interviews and a survey. Uh, we use the same sample from study one to interview. Uh, so we use the elite powerlifters and the experienced coaches to ask them what they regard as a meaningful uh, strength change over uh, the time that we used uh, the, the training intervention studies. Makes sense. So the training intervention studies were six weeks. So we said, hey, what do you think is a meaningful strength increase in squat, bench press, deadlift, and total strength in six weeks? Uh, as well as some other questions around the topic, what could affect meaningfulness, um, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then we also had a survey that was distributed to a much larger sample of coaches and athletes of all levels, where we asked them to simply quantify what would you regard as a meaningful uh, strength change. And those were used to, uh, for us to be able to better analyze uh, our data for the training studies. Um, so then we have studies three and four, the training studies, essentially compared uh, minimum effective dose protocols against each other. Um, and we had, and we wanted to see overall what their effect was on one RM strength. Study one was basically one group doing singles at RP nine to nine and a half, uh, three times a week uh, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday with a two, to th uh, two, three, one squat bench press and deadlift frequency. So uh, squat bench on Monday, deadlift bench on Wednesday, uh, squat bench on Friday. They all, all they did was one single for each of those lifts, RP nine and a half, nine to nine and a half. And uh, they were also obviously performing their warmups until they reached that single. And they were compared, they, they went against a group that did the same exact thing, plus two back of sets of three repetitions at 80% of the single. So they did their top single of the day, that took 80% of that and did two triples. And then study four was the singles and back off group again versus a group doing just one AMRAP set at 70% one RM um, with the same exact training frequency. So those were the training studies. And last but not least, there was also a survey that we distributed to uh, competitive powerlifters. So they had to provide some sort of evidence for competing at a national level competition. We just so we, we had some sort of uh, a criteria to ensure that they were of a certain level. And we asked them uh, if they had experimented with minimum effective training dose, if not, why not? And would they be willing to, as, uh, as well as uh, a few other questions. And um, for those that said yes, more details on how many sets they did, how many accessories they did, uh, reps, RPE, um, how they felt, what strength changes they saw, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, I know it's a lot of information together, um, but that, that was essentially that paper, that multi-experiment paper. And in terms of findings, if, uh, if I am to express findings in the most, in, in the most brief way possible, um, a few heavy sets of one to five uh, repetitions, uh, two to three times per week. Uh, so one to three times per week, uh, per power lift, um, other an RPE above eight uh, are sufficient um, to make meaningful uh, strength increases, at least uh, for a period of six to 12 weeks. So that's a very simple, brief uh, summary of the findings. Um, some slight terms and conditions, obviously for the training interventions, um, the, sample, the sample sizes were not anything extreme. So we need to be um, cautious when interpreting 
Yeah, but the interview and survey data together kind of uh, come come to sort of address that that gap and give a bit more confidence in the overall uh, summary of findings. Pow, as Pop Smoke <laughs> would say, RIP. Awesome, dude. Um, I guess I just want to zone in on the surveys just a little bit to start here. Um, were you surprised? Like to me, when I when I hear like especially red advanced lifters in six weeks, immediately my go my head goes to any progress is progress. Um, were you surprised to see a little bit more of the the varied results in terms of what people expected to call meaningful changes in that kind of time frame? Yeah, and it was really really interesting to to see the difference. Um, between the survey, because the survey went out to 137 people, all levels, there was right. no, you know, you didn't have to be a national level coach or a national level athlete. Um, and then the interview part was only with the elite powerlifters, some of them all-time world record holders and IPF world champions and the, the coaches. And um, the elite the elite powerlifters, a lot of them said, or a few of them said anything would be progress. Similarly to, to some of the coaches, any progress is meaningful progress. Um, and then there were some some lifters in the survey survey uh, responses where they had uh, some extreme uh, some extreme uh, total increases like 30, 40, 50 kilos uh, in six weeks. There was a guy that entered 580 kilos, uh, but that was excluded as I assumed that that was a mistake. Um, but yeah, there it was. It was very interesting to see. Uh, to see that difference, and I think the main, the main uh, sort of determinant for that difference was uh, the level uh, of the athletes uh, and the coaches. So the the more inexperienced athletes were, and now this is not terms of this apply. Um, this is just from my own observation. They were more likely to say, "Oh, 30, 40, 50 kilos." in six weeks compared to the more experienced uh, lifters or coaches where some coaches even said, hey, even uh, a lower RPE at the same weight is stop progress. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just just reading through the paper, it was it was really, uh, I think, refreshing to see kind of how everything was worded and how everything was presented. Um, don't quote me on this, but I think, you know, with with like studies three and studies four, um, you know, the two six week training studies, I think you guys even use the, the, the verbiage of like, this is an exploratory analysis. And, and I think that that's a really cool way to frame it. Um, but anyway, kind of, kind of continuing on the point of study two, which again was, was, um, when you guys kind of interviewed these athletes and coaches to see, Hey, what, what is a meaningful gain in strength in six weeks? Because, you know, as you, as you described, that can kind of inform the analysis for, for studies three and four, the actual training studies. Um, and, and, and of course, correct me if I'm, if I'm misquoting kind of the findings here, but you know, that, uh, you know, the, the, the total increase of somewhere around like 16 to 17 kilos in, in about six weeks, again, like you, like, like you said, terms and conditions applied it, I'm sure it varies based on, uh, you know, level of experience of the athlete and, and, and the coach and whatnot. I guess my, my question for you is what do you think the, the, the pros and cons are of this approach? Obviously, there are multiple pros of this. Um, you guys wouldn't have taken that approach otherwise. Um, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a really cool way to do it. It's, to my understanding, that's the first time it's kind of been done in, in the sports science research. Um, but, but do you see any drawbacks to that approach? Um, like, 
you know, now that you've you've written up this this paper and and you've kind of probably been able to reflect on it, do you think there's any downsides to that approach? Um, you know, like, like we kind of mentioned, if um, if somebody thinks putting 580 kilos on their total in six weeks is um, is 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 meaningful progress, you know, maybe there's there's a difference maybe there's a mismatch between like what people expect and, and people kind of overestimate mm-hmm. what they think they can gain in a certain time period. So anyway, I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts, if there's any like uh, particular cons to, the, to that approach that, that, that you've come across. For, for sure. And again, um, it's, and it's something that I'm, I'm glad you guys are communicating as well, being cautious and obviously understanding that this was a cool project and we try to make it as complete as possible, but at the same time, it's one project and there is obviously limitations to it. One limitation would be that, but we semi-address that limitation. Um, uh, as Dr. James Steele, if you see, it's, it's mostly linked in the supplementary material. What he did is he looked at openpowerlifting.org um, and, and, and filtered lifters to, to match the, the criteria of the studies uh, in terms of uh, being raw, et cetera, et cetera. And he compared the responses of the coaches and the athletes to what is required, um, what strength changes are required to move from one place to the higher place in a competition. And those um, they were very similar. So there was a bit of a sanity check, like, because obviously, again, that's, that's a perfect point. And I would say exactly the same. If uh, we happened to ask the 137 weird athletes and coaches who thought, hey, a meaningful increase is uh, three kilos in six weeks or vice versa, 50 kilos. Um, then how can we actually verify that that's kind of close to, to what would be an, an, an actual uh, pragmatic meaningful increase and give it some ecological validity. So that analysis by Dr. Steele uh, kind of gives it some um, some credibility, if that makes sense. And the, the actual graph for it, if you go on the preprint, there's a link for supplementary materials and uh, you can find that in there um, where it kind of has the two lines and how close they are. So what the coaches and athletes predicted and what was necessary for athletes to move up one place uh, in competition. And they were, in t- for total, they were very, very close. So it was uh, the objective, the objective measure was uh, 16.1 kilos and the subjective measure was 17.5 that's for total increase yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't want to take us too far on a tangent here but I'm just thinking um, if we zone in on the, the the two training studies a little bit now like you said standard terms and conditions apply um, only a few studies so we, we've got to make sure that's out there um, but one thing that immediately kind of came to my mind was I don't know your kind of views on the the relationship between strength and size is it contributory is it not um that kind of thing um one of the i can't remember the exact number but they talked uh you talked about in the text how much of a volume increase adding those back offs was and it's even just a little bit and it's a huge increase versus the one rm and then additionally the the one rm back offs uh one rm plus back offs versus the amrap group do you think that these groups potentially could have been getting stronger for for different reasons uh, I'm particularly thinking of the one RM plus back off versus the AMRAP as opposed to the other one. But I guess the, the other one works too, just because the groups doing a little bit more training volume probably had a chance to grow in that six weeks as opposed to like being totally kind of a skill driven thing. Um, do you think 
like what's your general thoughts in that relationship and do you think there's any kind of interesting things we can kind of draw from from your study uh, um, to kind of see some interesting uh, ideas on that um, so I'm not entirely sure whether there was uh, you know they were growing in such a short amount of time and coming off most of them coming off uh, from larger uh, larger volume uh, larger training volumes um, as we had kind of said look uh, one of the inclusion criteria was to not have uh, experimented with daily max training shortly before the training studies uh, but I think that that's one of the limitations and something that would have been cool if we had controlled uh, because I think uh, knowing some of the lifters personally um, some of them were not at their peak form strength wise obviously they weren't untrained they were still training so that sudden switch from okay I'm doing you know volume work at whatever percentage but I'm nowhere near my peak in strength to all of a sudden now I'm doing heavy singles uh, and some extra volume, uh, I, I expected to, to sort of see that, that peak in that group. Um, but I think it was mostly the additional volume that helped uh, the, the back of group in terms of uh, extra practice and that, that extra stimulus. I'm not sure if there was enough stimulus for hypertrophy, especially in such a short period of time. Um, and I think that kind of showed us how sensitive uh, or how potentially sensitive uh, volume can be when you go to those extremes. So even the added two sets of three, which time-wise, time, time wise, commitment-wise, is nothing. And effort-wise, they were all pretty, they weren't close to the nine and nine and a half uh, RPEs of the, the main sets. Uh, and still, they managed to make uh, much better gains, something that we also saw with the AMRAP group, where the AMRAP group was not doing something Super specific, but as you guys pointed out the other day, uh, that practice with those reps um, was uh, made, made a much bigger difference than the super specific, just a single uh, at RP nine to nine and a half. Um, but yeah, I think I think we kind of saw that the minimum dose for maintenance might be super low, even lower than 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 we think, because obviously we haven't. We need more studies to, to look at those sort of daily max uh, protocols and potentially experiment with a, 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 a protocol that would have a once a week frequency for the squad and the bench, which was the original plan, but there was no, there was no chance we were going to get buy-in from lifters to participate in that. Um, and we see that just adding a sprinkle of volume can make a huge difference, especially when you're that low. Yeah, I think... It, it, it's it's super interesting and and the more that i think about kind of studies three and four which again were those training studies I, I i really like the 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 groups and and how they were designed because i think it again like 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 you said multiple times there, there's a ton of caveats here but you know i think this gives us a good amount of insight and i think it it, it allows for some really cool comparison because you know i think and, 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 and we've definitely talked about this as well before is that peak intensity is probably pretty important for a power lifter. I think that that makes some sense. I don't know if there's like a ton of good data directly on that, but, but I think, you know, I think we would probably take that position, but based again, based on this, it seems as if peak intensity in isolation or, or only peak intensity might be slightly inferior to, like you said, two triples at 80% of that top set, which is going to be like, you know, four to six reps in reserves, 
give or take for for most people. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but like I think, I think that that's really interesting there. Um, so th- that that's my first comment. My next, and and, and feel free to to disagree with that um, if you do. And then the second thing is, do you think that there was like an artificial peak for a lot of these lifters? So you know, it was a six week training study. And like, it sounds like a, a good amount of them were doing pretty high volumes, uh, or at least higher than what they were prescribed higher, yeah. here. Yeah. So like, do you think it was kind of an artificial peak? And then the, the, the natural extension of that question is, okay, what if this was a 12 week study? What if this was a 16 week study? Then do we start to see these meaning, meaningful increases kind of start to dissipate? I'm curious your thoughts. I know I threw a lot at you, but no, 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 no. Uh, that, that's a very interesting question, and I think that was definitely some of the effect that we that we saw there. That uh, it wasn't that this was a magical formula minimum of minimum dose. I think what we saw was a lot of these athletes coming off uh, higher volumes and lower. I'm afraid, as a student of Dr. James Steeler, I am not legally allowed to use the word intensity, so I will use the word load. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Dr. James Steele. Um, but yeah, they were coming off higher volumes, at least higher than the, what they were doing and uh, lighter loads, at least for the most part. So that super specific uh, uh, stimulus, as well as the, the, the very heavy, the very heavy loads and the short period of time, I think it did act as a, a short peak. Um, and we had seen... Uh, so we had done a pilot study with the powerlifters in Greece, and they did it for 10 weeks. So they, they just did singles without the back of sets, and they, but they were tested at competition. And that was at a, a, a national level competition, which looking back, well, when we did it, we were like, perfect. This is the ideal study design because it's as realistic as possible. But obviously, as you guys know, uh, testing in comp or testing in the training hall is, is a very different um, Atmosphere and things are different in comp for, for a plethora of reasons, for a plethora of reasons. Um, and we saw that uh, five, two out of those five lifters that were doing the singles for 10 weeks uh, and tested at week 11, they actually uh, either did not gain or lost a bit of strength and two of them increased. Um, so there is a slight hint there that maybe just doing the singles for such a long time Uh, might have some deleterious effects on performance. But from what the powerlifting athletes and coaches said, and that's where the project comes in, that's why I wanted all the studies to be on one paper. Um, A lot of, uh, well, a few athletes and coaches of of, of great experience said that uh, they gave ranges from six to 12 weeks for a minimum dose approach being effective. Uh, My personal opinion is that I think they would have been able to still see meaningful increases for up to eight weeks if, if I had to, let's say, bet on it. Uh, but I think after a certain point, uh, after the eight-week mark, uh, at least for some lifters, and especially for the ones that were doing just singles, um, I think things would start to get not only monotonous in terms of the training, because we've got to factor that in as well, uh, but I think they would need that extra extra volume. Obviously, it's something that we want to do in the future. Um, but if I was to experiment, so if, if there's any practical takeaways here, I would um, kind of say six to eight weeks as a starting point. See how I'm feeling. Obviously, you're hitting hitting singles at RP nine and a half, so that those are able to uh, give you an idea of where you're standing. 
if you see those slowly start going down, potentially it's time to cap it and uh, either switch or start adding volume. So that, that was going to be my next question kind of coming off of that. So, you know, one con of, of this is that it potentially has a short-term strategy, but you could look at that in a slightly different way of, I don't know, I guess my first part of this question is, do you have any kind of personal or coaching experience with kind of the resensitization effect of like really stripping down somebody's volume to, to you know, the bare bones when they hit a plateau or they just kind of feel stuck um, and, you know, you try to make some changes, but things really don't seem to get moving. It just feels super stale, um, you know, ripping things back to the bare bones. And then that's actually going to potentiate further, quote unquote, normal training, because that was one of the immediate kind of things I thought of. And, and kind of, you know, if you have some sort of like periodization model or whatever for powerlifting, doesn't have to be super fancy, but like you, you know, you do your competition prep, you do your competition. Most times people want to take, you know, a little bit of time off after a meet or, you know, change things up. Maybe you do one of these kind of minimum effective dose approaches to kind of, you know, two, four, six weeks, something like that, um, to get this quote unquote resensitization effect. Can less really be more like all the taglines and bumper sticker quotes? I don't know. Um, but that, that was kind of uh, something I thought. So that kind of spinning the, the short term nature of this on its, on, its, on its head a little bit and kind of looking at it in a positive sense. Is that something you've experienced um, personally coaching or have any thoughts on the little bit of research that we have? Um, yeah. For sure. So there are some athletes that I've worked with where, uh, for some of the reasons that you outlined, plus also psychological reasons, and sometimes more of a slight placebo effect, if if I can call it that, where you you go from something that is more orthodox to something a bit more unorthodox, but still following basic uh, principles and having the very heavy singles. To okay, it's it's just for a month plus a couple of weeks. You know, if you present it like that, it's it's a month plus a couple of weeks. Um, has helped some of my lifters progress and make some short-term increases in strength. Um, but I think that it would be interesting to see, and I think uh, that's where a few lifters may benefit from this. If if you if you if you're to use it in a resensitization sort of manner, uh, you could potentially look at having the same uh, RP the nine and nine and a half, especially if you're coming off a competition and you don't want to be subjected to such heavy weights. And you could add a couple of singles. You could modify these protocols. These protocols were not generated by some sort of god of minimum effective dose where, you know, they, they were they were based mostly on coaching experience and what seemed like a like a logical minimum dose protocol. But you definitely modify them and potentially uh, potentially potentiate uh, their, their their effect even more. But overall, the a big a big uh, why behind the minimum dose as a lifter myself and as a coach was the peace of mind um, that this gives me as a lifter and as a as a coach to know that hey a busy period or uh, things are hectic at home or whatever or you can't tolerate as much volume now because your recovery is bad because you're working at some point. We know that for at least a few weeks, you can maintain and make some gains using a minimum dose approach. Um, but again, I would say I advise uh, against presenting this as a sort of like a training method, as, as I'm afraid some people will do. This is not a You're losing a so much method. money right now. Okay, I know, I know. And I was going to start selling the official minimum dose uh, <laughs> uh, kit, which is... Uh, <laughs> essentially an empty box <laughs> so I, 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 
for that joke. So I have a really oh, important question for, for, for the God himself of minimum effective dose. Um, I thought it was appropriate just to kind of ask you, you know, kind of, you know, looking at this through a practical lens of how you have applied it in the past and kind of what you've had success with again in practice, because at the end of the day, you know, you design these, these, these studies to answer a question, right? You don't, it's, it's not necessarily like, like you said, it's not like there's some perfect uh, minimum effective dose formula. And, 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 you know, when you're designing these studies, you're saying, okay, we're trying to compare things. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, there's some considerations there. So my question for you is from a practical perspective, now that you've, you know, you've, you've done the, you've done the review, uh, of those, those six previously published studies. Um, and then you've, you've done this big project. You did that, uh, you did the pilot trial as well. I'm sure you've experimented with, with athletes and stuff. I'm curious where your head is at as of now, like how the best way to apply it. And, and again, best is going to be dependent on the individual and a ton of situations, but kind of just a general framework of, okay, this seems to make a lot of sense. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense that, that kind of thing. Um, one, one way to, to apply it, which I found very useful and very um, sort of calming is uh, I've had lifters uh, come up against really busy periods in their lives or unstable periods where training uh, was, you know, they, they weren't able to commit to the four or five sessions per week for sure, or sometimes even to the, the three sessions. Um, and they, they weren't able to always commit to the, the time required to complete some of the volume and the accessory work. So instead of prescribing a, or having an exact uh, training protocol, uh, the idea of, hey, look, uh, if all fails, try and hit a single at RPE seven to nine and a couple of back offsets, and we're good uh, for, for a few times per week. Um, and at the same time, I believe uh, that that also allows, allowed for some, so some of my lifters to kind of feel like, okay, I'm busy, I have other things going on, but at the same time, progress, uh, and I might even be able to make some progress. Um, another way that you're, you can uh, potentially rock it is if you are in um, a comp prep uh, and you are, again, limited by time or recovery and your ability to recover is, is hindered because of exogenous factors, you could potentially use a minimum dose approach as a sort of a pseudo peak uh, for your comp. Um, but overall, managing fatigue, um, Times where training uh, time is, uh, is not as uh, great. Um, and overall, as a, as a strategy of psychologically allowing yourself to know that you're making progress, uh, even if you're not able to commit to your usual uh, training volume or training schedule. So I'd say from a practical, from a practical standpoint, if you're a power lifter who wants to optimize strength, you're better off um, doing something that has uh, more training volume, has a, has a, um, a sort of a more organized approach uh, to it long-term as well. Uh, but I also understand that optimal is, is something that is constantly, does not have the same definition uh, all the time. So instead of trying to force the volume, the time where you're super busy or unable to recover and trying to really commit to the original plan, if you feel that that's that can potentially backfire, switch to a more minimum dose approach. That doesn't necessarily need to be the protocols of the study. 
Um, tweak it, use singles at RP six to, to nine, um, use back offsets, but know that most likely you will be able to maintain or make some meaningful progress just by doing a few um, high effort uh, and potentially high load sets per week. So yeah, we'll, we'll, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in because I have a direct follow up on that. Um, what, what role do you think intensity of effort plays here? Um, so in this study, or, or in this series of studies, you know, there were the, the two training groups where the singles were at nine to nine and a half, which, it, which is a pretty high intensity of effort. Um, the group that did this, the heavy singles and the back offs, the back offs weren't a super high intensity of effort. But then that third training group in study number four, um, I think it was 70% of 1RM. Um, Pat, correct me if I'm wrong here, 70% of 1RM. And I think it was similarly nine to nine and a half. So intensity of effort, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, when, when training volume is low, I think it, it generally makes sense as a rule of thumb. Hey, if, if you're not doing a ton of sets, you're trying to be time efficient, probably makes sense to be, go pretty close to failure um, and, and get a lot of bang for each set. But I'm curious how you kind of conceptualize intensity of effort in this, in this minimum effective dose, um, you know, kind of thought, kind of thought process or framework. Yeah. So we, what we saw from the, the systematic review, um, was that a few sets close to, to, to failure or to failure that was for, not for powerlifters, but for resistance trained, uh, men, because there was no data on women, uh, were enough to, uh, allow them to make significant strength increases in, um, six to six to 12 weeks. And we then wanted to sort of mimic, uh, high effort in the context of powerlifting. And that's, that's why we utilized an RP of nine to nine and a half because it's high effort, but also in a more specific manner for powerlifters. But I am skeptical, obviously the, you know, the fact that we had resource constraints and, you know, it's not that I'm funded by big uh, minimum volume uh, <laughs> dose uh, industry. Uh, we couldn't just say, and we had a limited amount of uh, participants that we could recruit or something uh, as exploratory and experimental as this. Um, I am skeptical as to which, as to whether they would be able to still make similar progress and, uh, with a lower uh, RP single potentially maybe increasing the amount of singles to two or three but having them closer to six or to RP six or eight. Um, I wouldn't uh, advise against it, but I'm not going to advise fully confidently for it, but it's something that we definitely experiment with. And as a coach, not as a, as a researcher, I, I would say that I, I, I think you'd still make some good progress. Um, so, but then I would also say that RP8 in the context of, of powerlifting uh, could be potentially uh, understood as high effort, at least at least in the context of, of singles, because yeah, it's not it's not the same as a multi rep set uh, close to failure where you're sweating and you know you're you're, you're barely making it there, but it's still two reps away from. Uh, from maxing out does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely um i just super quick anecdote here or or just one kind of coaching practical thought and then zach i'll pass it over to you is that i think maybe a a potential thought process for for people that want to apply this concept to to practice is 
there might be a limitation to thinking of the immediate results you get from a time constrained period. So what I mean by this is perhaps, perhaps you have, okay, the next, the next four months of my life are going to be crazy. Um, but you know, I know I'm not going to be at my peak strength levels in, in four months. I know I'm not going to be hitting massive PRs. I care about how strong I am five years from now. Um, maybe it makes sense. Okay. I'm going to take those singles at RP six to seven, save those five minutes that take me those next couple jumps to hit a single at eight and a half, nine and a half, whatever. And I'm going to do a couple sets close to failure, accrue volume very efficiently in the, you know, five to 12 rep range, because I'm, I'm hedging my bets that my best bet for being as strong as possible five years from now is having or retaining as much muscle mass in my frame. I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm just saying that's a potential another consideration that, you know, like you said, big, big minimum effective dose isn't just throwing money at you to, to do this, you know, five year long study to see if that actually plays out. This is just another practical thought I had in that, you know, this is just a general limitation of research is that the, the, the studies aren't, you know, they're, they're generally short term. Um, so yeah, I just kind of want to throw that in there. If, if any of you guys strongly disagree, feel free to hop in. If, if not, I'll pass over to you, Zach. Zach, you got anything before I ask my next question? No? Okay. Um, Sorry? I said, do you have anything on that before I ask my next question? Because I'm going to take us on a tangent, unfortunately. Uh, just, uh, are we are we kind of lagging? There was a bit of a, but are we on the same page now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're good now. Okay, perfect. Uh, no, I, I wanted to say, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great that's a great point and I think if, if there's something major to take away from this is that hey here's a hint our research has kind of hinted that hey there the, you, you can make progress with less here's what we did obviously this is just what we did for two studies experiment with what minimum dose can look like for you play around with variables but you can feel um, sort of confident so some of the powerlifters, when asked at the last survey, uh, those that hadn't experimented with minimum dose training, I think 88% or something along those lines said that they would be willing to experiment with minimum dose training if there was more evidence around it. So I think the main takeaway, uh, aside from the technicalities and the specific uh, RPEs and the sets and the reps, is um, here's some research showing that you can make progress with uh, much less than we had originally thought. Um, don't take this as gospel. Take the concept, uh, modify it to suit your uh, training needs. And uh, as you said, Josh, for, for you, would be maintaining muscle mass and you'd want that extra volume. Take the totality of, of evidence that we've, we've presented, uh, adjust it uh, to your own training needs, experiment with it, and find your minimum dose approach rather than trying to replicate exactly what was done in those training studies. You're a terrible businessman. I just want to just want to make that very clear. But um, but yeah, no, one thing that came to my mind, like as a coach, I'm really excited about this project because I don't know if you guys have gotten the same things I did, like with a lot of the talk recently about the dose response relationship between volume and hypertrophy. And although the, the Ralston meta isn't super strong evidence for strength you could say to a lesser extent strength a little bit. Um, they just like, well, more volume is better. So if I take away volume, I'm just going to lose all my progress. And I think that is like a very natural thought process with like the dose response relationships with those things. Um, so as a coach, I'm really excited that this has come out to say, 
no, that's that's not the case. And then also like some of the speculative reasons that I think it could also set us up um, for longer term success, especially psychologically, like you mentioned, Pac, like there's just, there's only so long like where mentally you can take, you know, higher frequency, higher volume, high like high load um, specific training and mentally before, you know, a lot of times people want to mix things up. So like another application of this, I would imagine even when you're not constrained for time necessarily, but mentally you want to switch goals a little bit like Josh kind of said is like if I have a power lifter who's just like we were just talking off air a little bit like get sick of barbells for whatever reason but they still know they want to come back to powerlifting. hey let's do some of this minimum effective dose training on the the main lifts and then just go smash some hack squats like extensions that kind of stuff just because you enjoy it and, and do that for a while too so I think that's another um potential utility of this um both, both of those kind of things yeah for sure and it's 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 what you just mentioned about the volume, uh, not just the debate, but in general, I am not a big fan of the creation of camps and uh, the whole, yeah, I, I'm not going to be the, obviously the minimum dose concept is an interesting concept and I've poured uh, three years of my life into doing this research and super happy with, with what's come out and what we're able to contribute to the, the lifting community. Uh, but obviously this is not how to train optimally. This is not a concept of, optimal training this is not me saying hey guys minimum dose it's more of a this is the concept this is uh it's available to you utilize it as you 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 deem appropriate and uh, the whole idea of either being the super high volume uh is the way to go all the time or super low volume or sets of five or sets of two i, I think we need to understand that we you know there is there's 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 tools uh, and especially when you're dealing with power lifters of a high level that uh, are not going to pro be progressing by just adding five kilos every week um, being dogmatic with uh, either higher volumes or lower volumes uh, can sometimes backfire obviously i understand that for hypertrophy you know uh being being aware of the evidence and saying that hey more volume is probably going to be better in certain scenarios but even there Having that sort of asterisk in terms of condition supply, and but that's not something that people want to hear. They people want the the sexy Absolutely. one one method. <laughs> I, I guess as a follow up to that, has your work on this the past few years kind of as a coach scooted down your kind of volume range of like where you kind of start with the client or, or kind of like want to want to live with an athlete? Yeah, yeah. To to a certain extent, it has, and it has also um, given me. Uh, more confidence in sort of experimenting with uh, lower, lower volume, lower volume sets uh, for the the big three, and then having more of that volume uh, distributed to some of the the accessories. Obviously, depending on the training period and phase. Uh, but yeah, it has definitely given me that um, that peace of mind that hey, we we do not need to start uh, at X amount of sets. We can start a bit lower and work our way up without slowing down progress uh, by a lot and even not slowing it down at all actually yeah some, something to kind of follow up there and, and just agree with is that like like you said it's a it's a potential avenue for exploration for the given individual and what's the cost the cost is okay we have some indication that you're probably still going to make progress um or you're going to have a good shot at making progress um the the so 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 the cost 
is is pretty low, but the, but the potential upside is is pretty high, I think, to exploring lower volume, because, you know, Zach and I have come across it in in, in pack. I'm sure you have too in practice. Is that some people just don't need a ton to progress, and they progress better with less. Um, things are more sustainable. Things are more repeatable. So if you kind of experiment, hey, there's this there's this minimum uh, minimum effective dose work. It's a concept. I'm gonna kind of explore more of these ranges. We'll see what happens. If progress slows down, okay, we'll go back up if, if time permits. Um, but maybe it's better. And 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 I think in the hypertrophy world, kind of the the knee jerk for troubleshooting is let's up the dose. Perhaps we have a um, perhaps we have a reason that you're if if progress isn't satisfactory that it's it's just as feasible that we should lower the dose um, of your training. And, you know, worst case scenario, progress just slows down. Okay, then we can go back if we detect that. Whereas I think the risks of going higher volume might be might be a little bit more, there might yeah. be a little bit greater risks. Especially with, with injuries being a thing. And I see that with a lot of, I don't, I don't want to be the, with younger lifters, because I'm not that old <laughs> myself, but I have to be the, with the, you know, you see it a lot with younger lifters. So I have to be that guy for a sec where, you know, similarly to, you know, to us training when I was 20, 21, I thought, hey, can do squats seven times a week and small off and whatnot. And all, all, all the, the only limitation to that is, uh, you know, if I'm alive or not. But injury, <laughs> injury is also a thing. And for most, if not, majority like for the majority of people powerlifting is a hobby sport and usually there is you know a daily life uh, work schedule sometimes a manual work and just constantly pushing training volume uh, can sometimes backfire and set you back for much more time but to share um, from the interviews without obviously revealing the lifter's name but that's a, a, a power lifter who is an, a current all-time record holder world record holder across all federations and uh, I think total and uh, deadlift. Um, what they said is that they were surprised by how lower, how much lower they could push their training volume from what they had initially thought. And they also said in the interview that they had spoken with um, some other world record holders. Again, I'm not going to mention mention names. And they were surprised that they were squatting like once every two weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, obviously, we're talking about extremes, but um, I really wanted to have those interviews with the coaches and the lead lifters to kind of address the crowd that will go like, yeah, you know, I'm much stronger than the participants of the study, even though the participants were fairly strong, um, to, to kind of give credibility to, to the whole concept. And a lot of those elite lifters, um, uh, not a lot, some of those elite lifters mentioned how they were able to progress and make good progress, even though their numbers were really, really high, like world le record levels, they were able to make progress and, and hit PRs by doing much less than they had originally thought was necessary. And uh, those those quotes are uh, in the supplementary material because um, <laughs> the manuscript ended up being uh, like, it would have been like 30, 30 40,000 words if uh, we had the whole thematic analysis thrown in the main, main uh, part. One thing that just made me think of this is another kind of anecdote coaching observation question. Um, one thing you'll hear a lot of people say, Josh, you actually shared a study with me the other day that I can't remember the exact design of, but um, kind of the anecdote that as you get stronger, you actually need less volume. 
Um, you know, every dose of training volume as you're lifting greater absolute loads seems to be more stressful. Um, do you think that could be at play here at all? And does that match up with your anecdote? Are you asking me now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, to a certain extent, I think it will depend on the, the phase that the lifter is in and what the, they're coming off. But uh, I've, uh, again, completely anecdotally, before I, I touch on the, on the interview data, yes, a, a lot of the stronger lifters and some, um, one of the lifters that I coach who's a current uh, record holder here in the UK uh, for the, the deadlift in total at the 120 class at the, the M1, so 810 kilo total and a 340 kilo deadlift. Sorry for the, the kilos. Uh, he 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 was able to to progress throughout two years with just a few hard sets per week. I had calculated the the average amount of sets, but they they were like two to five sets per week for squat and deadlift, and uh, maybe three to six sets uh, for bench, uh, or maybe four four to four to seven. And he was a heavy dude, very muscular dude. Uh, a very strong dude, and he was uh, able to continue making progress with very specific, uh, plain, uh, specific and sort of boring playing, you know, adding a bit of weight and doing sets of three, and, and that's that. And that's what came out of some of the interviews that um, as a lifter gets stronger. Actually, uh, some coaches said what you just mentioned. Some coaches said the exact opposite. Yeah. So there was a bit of a Yep. The, the stronger the lifter, the less the volume. And others said the stronger they did more. And I, I saw a bit of dichotomy in terms of responses there, and which I found interesting um, because I think minimum dose training is something that not a, like some people are afraid to experiment with. Like if you're doing your hobby sport, especially at a competitive level, and you know that ah, if I do a bit more, I might get a bit more out of it there's very le little chance that you're going to suddenly start uh, using yourself as a guinea pig and being like, ah, let me just try a few singles at RP8 this week, or I'll do two triples instead of five. And I'm curious to see how many of those people, like how, how much of that volume that people are doing is actually not necessary and could be just extra fatigue that they don't need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other opening Pandora's box a bit there with those, yeah, those, those I, open statements. I, I was going to say that one thing that made me think of is like, do we do we think that some of these anecdotes are like kind of the self-selection of the sport, like the, the people that are the most successful who are going to value the anecdote more so from are people that respond to training and need less training volume over time so that it comes starts to become like a positive anecdote of people that, you know, make it to the higher levels because lower training volumes take less time. Like you said, powerlifting is generally a hobby sport for most people, even at some of the upper levels, they have other things in their life that kind of set these constraints of what is feasible in terms of a, a, the amount of volume you can perform. And so that's kind of going to set a cap for like people that need to, additional volume to progress theoretically. These people that are, you know, low volume responders are probably going to kind of rise to the top of the sport. I wonder if that's uh, at play here a little bit too. Now I'm just, just spitballing, yeah. but and I think it's uh, what you mentioned about uh, muscle mass and their starting point, I think, may also affect that. Mm -hmm. So you do have um, more advanced or experienced lifters that may not be as muscular as others, uh, that that may impact how much volume they need to, to still make progress uh, in training. Um, and also, I think it's uh, as a very minor point, 
the placebo effect has to be taken into consideration and how much lifters buy into a program. So if I, if you have a lifter and you hit him with, um, hey, we're going to be trying this minimum dose, minimal, minimum, less, what's the less we're going to be trying, you know, using that, 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 that those words, it may kind of put them in a mindset of, oh, we're trying things. This, this is probably not going to work. I'm used to doing 10 times, uh, 10 times that. Whereas uh, if, if, they're, if they buy into it and they're like, yeah, heavy singles, let's go. You know, as some, as some, as some people did. And uh, um, I think that, that can have an effect as well. So if you're used to volume, volume, Shaco, uh, mm. 25 uh, triples at 70% uh, uh, for squat and then squat later in the session as well, <laughs> another 25 triples. And then all of, all of a sudden your coach or you read that, one set of one and three triples twice a week. You may be like, there's no chance. Uh, yeah. This goes completely against what I've been doing all this time and there's no way this will work. Yeah, okay, I so... think I, I think the biggest thing to echo is just that, <laughs> like, I think keeping keeping in mind the, the placebo effect and buy-in is so important. And just that the there's always going to be anecdotes both ways. And Zach kind of touched on selection bias. Um, like our one of our primary research interests is proximity to failure. And a lot of people like to say, you know, like all the, the biggest bodybuilders, they all train to failure. Like, how can you disregard that? It's like, yes, that, that, that does seem to be the case for, for certain individuals, but we've also seen a lot of people when you take them, when they were doing all their sets, RP nine, RP 10, you pull them back a little bit. Okay. We can add 10, 20% volume, or we just keep the volume the same decrease proximity to failure you know, that seems to work really, really well for them. So they can actually be ready to squat, you know, within the next seven days. So, you know, there's, a, there's another example of where the anecdotes go both ways volume. I think there's anecdotes both ways, how changes, vol how volume should change over time as you advance in your career. There's anecdotes both ways. Um, I just always like to keep that in mind that like anecdote is kind of like just a nebulous thing because there's part of it is, is going to be selection bias, buy-in placebo effect. Um, and yeah, there's just things can be much more flexible than people think. People there's have a, there's this... a lot of ways to get strong. Oh, sorry, I, I, I think I, I lagged and then I cut you off. Oh no 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 no! I was just adding on to what you were saying that there's a lot of ways to get strong. So you were cutting me off. Yeah, I cut you off. The the god the of minimum effective I... dose god. That's that's a that's a caffeine free diet coke, right? No, it's Lacroix. I'm a little girl. I don't know what Lacroix is because I'm from the. Yeah, it's like spark, spark, sparkling water. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say that it's. Um, I made the joke now and lost lost my train of thought. But um, people people have this, uh, and once you start looking behind the curtain, you start looking at the research and, and realizing that hey, powerlifting wise, there's those three studies and that one study. Uh, there's not much at least training study wise. And we base a lot of stuff on low sample um, uh, training studies with uh, recreationally active individuals and the protocols often not, you know, they do not resemble what a powerlifter would do. Obviously it's not evidence that it is to be disregarded, but uh, it needs to be um, interpreted with caution. But people have some of these, these, these um, have the notion that we have it all figured out already to, to a T, like the same with periodization, uh, how people regard periodization as this um, 
holy concept that has been like researched to the absolute to the absolute limit, especially in the context of powerlifting. And they, uh, where in, in reality we are still figuring a lot of the stuff out. I think as long as you address some basic principles uh, and you know not do something completely unorthodox, there's many ways to progress and there's many ways to adjust a training protocol uh, and make uh, meaningful progress. That's just more of a, as a side comment. And it, it, I think it's kind of backed up by what you said, the, the two, two different sides to anecdotes. So you, you see, we see people progressing with a completely opposite approaches to training. The low volume, heavy, uh, whatever approach versus Shaco, sub-maximal, sets on sets on sets. Both are producing world champions. Uh, so I think that, that it's kind of a clue that, hey, maybe things are not as absolute as some people present them to be for whatever agenda they may have. That literally flows directly into my next question. Um, this is kind of a theoretical one. Um, you know, all, all of us like to talk about the particulars of training, try to talk about optimal procedures, all that kind of stuff. Um, do you think that training, quote unquote, optimally and whatever that is at that time in your life and all that, um, do you think that's actually going to get you to a higher lifetime peak of, of whatever your kind of goal is? Or do you think that that is simply going to get you there faster so long as you take a suboptimal approach but continue to stay consistent with training? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that being – I think that it's, it can sometimes be difficult to define – what optimal is uh, so it may be optimal on paper but it may not really fit your lifestyle but at the same time it's very difficult to actually figure out uh, optimal so i will just say i'm i'm not i'm not entirely sure I'm, i don't feel I, I feel confident in in saying that i believe that you can um uh adopt a a, a suboptimal quote-unquote suboptimal approach and still reach that peak but maybe later but at the same time if the optimal approach on paper is not really suitable to your lifestyle or you know there's other factors that can contribute to, to injury and overall things not going well uh, then that may backfire as well so I gave you a very long uh, answer which didn't mean much but hey here we are that's what we got <laughs> Yeah, man, once again, given us uh, like a, an answer, like a true scientist, which is awesome. And, and, and of course, there is no way to know, right? Because, you know, I think with with some of the studies that have popped up over the last couple of years in which the researchers will look at previous training volumes and try to prescribe protocols based on their previous training volumes, I think there's there's starting to be some indication that, you know, what you were doing before is going to influence how you respond to subsequent training, right? So, you know, with this, with this minimum effective dose uh, framework or, or, or concept, I should say, is like, okay, we, results might not be optimal for these next eight to 10 weeks, but maybe it'll kind of resensitize me. Maybe that'll get me to a higher peak for psychological or physiological reasons. Maybe that'll get me to the same peak. Maybe that'll get me to a lower peak. It's, it's really hard to say. Um, my hunch is that it'll, it'll probably get you to a similar spot as long as you're not doing this suboptimal training for seven years. Exactly. You know, you know that, that's my hunch. I think, I, I think that, that, that kind of makes sense. But I mean, you know, like we were talking about before, 
um, training studies are, are, are going to be constrained by length. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have to do our best to kind of piece the puzzles, uh, piece the puzzle pieces together and, 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 and wow. come up with our, <laughs> and, and come up with our, our best guess for practice. Um, so I think the, the last question we have for you, and, uh, unless you want to jump in here, Zach is what do you think is the next step in this area of research? So, you know, you guys have done awesome work again, kind of, Hey, here's this concept. This seems to, to, you know, applying some of this stuff, you can probably get some meaningful changes with, with really low dose of training. Um, okay. Now what's next? What, what do you think is, is going to be the most potent way to kind of progress this research going forward? Um, I, I don't have a, uh, a definite answer that is completely well thought. So this may change, uh, in, in the future, but I would really like to, to do, to actually look now that there will be a bit more confidence and a bit more hype around the concept to actually do those longer term studies and play around with uh, potentially, um, lower RPEs and see whether, you know, different protocols uh, can work. But uh, also um, have a look at the minimum dose, and potentially that would that would need to be a collaborative effort in the um, in the in the world of of, of other sports, where athletes uh, that need to train a multitude of athletic qualities uh, might benefit uh, much more than a powerlifter who only needs to train for maximum strength uh, from the minimum dose. So I would I'd be interested to see uh, in that world uh, how and whether minimum dose training needs adapting. Um, but that said, um, I do want as a sort of, not an official postdoc, but now that the PhD is, is nearly, nearly finished, um, to kind of uh, look at um, dose uh, and strength and hypertrophy and try and do like a, a bigger study, um, potentially dedicating a year or so on that and kind of recruiting a lot of the people that we have available here in the UK that we know and are also lifters and kind of try to provide a bit more evidence around the whole idea of, uh, around the, the relationship of volume and hypertrophy and strength, but have a more complete uh, project uh, done around that. Mm. Um, so I give you a few responses there, but I would definitely like to do some more minimum dose stuff, uh, lower RPEs, try a few different uh, protocol configurations out um, and yeah see how how and whether uh, athletes of other sports can successfully utilize that one, one thing that I, I mean I don't want to take us too long here I think we're kind of coming to the end here but um, I know Dr. Dr. Steele is obviously we kind of had a few um, moments where we kind of mentioned that like he's a really big advocate of making sure that we're properly defining intensity of effort what momentary fa failure means all that kind of stuff oh. and uh, you know a lot of the volume research is that's just like such a big confounder right of like is it you know i'm not saying anything negatively about the work but like is it possible for to do some of the protocols that you know are in the research to failure quote unquote like it just it i think that really um could shape the conversation just because i know that um your guys's group would be very very particular about how you're yeah. defining that and executing that i think that'd be a really interesting area to explore um, does this dose response relationship actually go up past 20 sets when we're taking things to it to, you know, defining effort properly and contextualizing that conversation to, um, you know, that's, that's something me and Josh talk about all the time is, you know, yeah. 
almost every single training variable that we discuss in terms of these big principles is kind of benchmarked by effort and, and, and how that kind of influences everything. What load do we need to train at? Well, are the sets to failure? Are they not to failure? Are they far from failure? Are they close to failure? Like there's all this stuff that I think influence and kind of permeates into all the little different variables that we talk about. So I'm just, I'm just excited to hear that you're interested in kind of exploring that area to kind of take the minimum effective dose and maybe make it a little bit more uh, of a spectrum and just see kind of how that um, variable, I would imagine would be pretty tightly controlled and would influence things. I mean, real science, like, okay, we talk about all this fake science now, but as the, as the legend Tom Platts once said, you always have five more five 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 just do five more and you know that's that but joking aside uh, it will be really nice as i sometimes express it to get the freaks uh, in the lab get like train people from the gyms we, we do have a pool of a lot of people that we know from the powerlifting and bodybuilding gyms that we we go to and obviously we coach people around the area and we are at the university uh, so there's also students that are lifters that, that, that are aware of the group. Um, get them um, get, get them to participate in a study. Uh, also try, um, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to, to reveal this, but hey-ho, it would be interesting to also see what changes in hypertrophy uh, are noticeable. Mm. Because as Dr. J this is Dr. James Steele, so this is me just... Uh, mentioning his idea, so this is not this was not my idea. As lifters and as people that enjoy lifting for strength and overall hypertrophy beyond uh, you know uh, health uh, benefits, the fact that a study says, "Hey, this guy's bicep or chest chest uh, grew by X amount and it was a statistically significant difference," it would be nice within. Uh, a study where we're looking at the do dose response uh, between strength and hypertrophy, uh, sorry, training volume and strength and hypertrophy, to also see um, by, kind of, by kind of involving potentially bodybuilding judges or, or bodybuilders and kind of blinding them and having them before and after images, et cetera, et cetera, to see whether at which point do those changes uh, mean something to mm. the eye. Because our, our we want to, when we're training for hypertrophy, we do not we, we care for the muscle to be, you know, at least some people care for the muscle to be visually bigger and noticeably bigger, not uh, in some of those training show, studies. Show them your ultrasound scans. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nice, though, if you pulled up ultrasound. Okay. There you go. <laughs> what? <laughs> but yeah. So, yeah, that would be interesting to see to kind of uh, help the, the whole debate because I think it has, uh, it has gone a bit, you know, it's there's obviously limitations and the thing that many people do not understand is once you get into the nitty-gritty of research and you you are actually there doing the research as 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 weird as as it sounds things are not as simple and as straightforward especially when you're recruiting uh, training trained populations and power lifters and you need people to commit to a certain uh, training protocol so it's not as easy as hey let's do the big volume study one year hey person yep. one two three four five 55 person 58 uh okay these are the protocols come to the lab then and you know especially when there's no funding yep. anyways going off on the tangent that's me that's so, I don't know what this is. Cultural <laughs> appropriation. I'm Greek. I can do it. Yeah, man. Um, I think all this stuff is super exciting. W one one last spitball here is 
you know, I think we, we kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast how it, it kind of makes intuitive sense. Hey, if we're going to be very time efficient in the gym, a lower or a higher intensity of effort, probably make that's probably a good rule of thumb. But you kind of mentioned potentially looking at like lower RPE type work. And, you know, my, my mind was just kind of going like, how could we configure a very time efficient protocol to kind of maximize the the volume accumulated in a given period of time? Like, is there maybe there's a middle ground in which you're, you're still training heavy enough, you're still training hard enough, of course. But you know, if, if you're taking a, a set with 70% to RP nine to nine and a half, you're going to need some time to be ready to go again. So, you know, of course, you know, you guys design that to look at at a concept, but maybe in practice, Hey, if, if, if we're, maybe we can get to like more, more relative volume or like more reps at a given load. If we, if we do more sets, but shorter rest periods. So like point being is there, there may be a give and a take with, um, if you are doing a multi-set protocol to a slightly lower intensity of effort, and again, like I think there's some indication based on based on uh, uh, studies three and four here that more volume, um, you know, just with with the addition of those backoffs is beneficial. So, anyway, I'm just kind of rambling here that I think there there might be something there in terms of hey, how can we yeah. configure lower RP training, but it's still super time efficient because you have that advantage of you don't have to rest as long between sets. Um, and yeah. Two, two coaches that were interviewed, um, one, in my opinion, one of the best in the world uh, with an extreme resume of uh, IPF world champions and uh, thousands of people, or at least hundreds of people coached, um, who is also, who also has one of the most known franchises in the coaching world and a coach that was part of that franchise. Uh, they did mention of experimenting with singles at RP 5-6 uh, with just uh, one or, or two lifters, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And they did see really, really nice progress. Uh, and I, I was, uh, and talking to a few other lifters uh, lately, the idea, like, I think it's definitely worth experimenting with it and seeing whether, you know, even if it's one study or six to 12 weeks, of one group doing, you know, try and get as many people as possible and have one group uh, doing RP six to maximum or five to maximum eight uh, work and see how far they can go. Because even if they increase, you know, even if they have like a 30 to 50% probability of uh, being, uh, of achieving meaningful increases, or even if they maintain sl- slightly increase, I think that's definitely something uh, useful for us as coaches and, and lifters if, if you can make some progress or at least maintain with uh, with low volumes and relatively low effort hey that's uh, that's amazing but you know we'll shall, we shall see right on man excited to kind of follow along and, and see what comes up next zach you got anything else or are we good to wrap up no oh, man pack appreciate you coming on dude it was a great chat Thank you guys Def- definitely got my mind going quite a bit so i'll probably have to pass you with some more questions here soon for sure. And uh, thank you for the, the opportunity. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, all, all kidding aside, we, you know, the, the way you answered the questions and, and kind of being, uh, you know, true to the results of your study, not overstating things. We have a ton of respect for that. Um, you know, even though you hit us with a little side chest today um, and, and you are, and, <laughs> Come on, and you, you are a good poster boy for minimum effective dose, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to create a camp around it. Um, I, you know, to- totally respect that man. And um, 
ton of respect for for the work you guys have been doing. So, thank and again, thank thank you so much for coming on today. Um, where can people uh, reach out to you, get in contact with you? Um, by the, the by, the minimum effective dose starter pack. Like, where's all that going down? So, no joking aside, if you want to easily access the paper, uh, you can go to minimumdosetraining.com. That will redirect you to the paper. I I thought getting a domain for it makes it a bit easier, especially because it's not PubMed indexed yet, as it's a preprint. So it hasn't been officially peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's under peer-reviewed now. Um, so minimumdosetraining.com to read the paper that we were referring to. You can find me on uh, Instagram where I keep a more of a mixed profile. I post research stuff and uh, lifting stuff, but it's also a personal profile at uh, Polka Rhodes, P-O-L-K-A-R-O-T-S. Uh, but I have my more serious academic Twitter, which uh, I use uh, as well, which is at PAC, P-A-K, and then Patroclos, P-A-T-R-O-K-L-O-S. Um, and on ResearchGate, if, if you, you find any of the work, there's obviously my profile there with all the other research. So yeah, that's that, I think. Yeah. Awesome. And my mobile phone number. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Th- thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for tuning in to uh, the Data Driven Strength Podcast. If you have a quick second to leave us a rating and review, that'd be much appreciated, but definitely do that after you go uh, follow pack on all the things you just mentioned and go check out their paper, read the 80 page paper, and then you can leave a rating review on the data driven strength podcast. Take care, everyone.